Well, friends, if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking together at verses 1 to 12. <clears throat> when you speak for a living, everybody knows when your voice ain't quite right. And you continue to hear that. And I'm sorry, it's actually better than it was yesterday. Um, but thank you for those of you who've been praying and pray that the Lord would sustain throughout the day. As we come to our study, we're returning to the book of Acts. Before we read this little section, let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Heavenly Father, we come turning to You knowing that You speak to us through Your Word. So Lord, make our ears attentive. May we say, speak, Lord, for Your servants are listening. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friends, if you're able, would you stand for the reading of the Scripture? <clears throat> it's a day of many names, and we have more before us. Acts 13, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Anaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimus the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed. When he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, thus far, God's holy word. Brethren, please be seated. Well, I mentioned a few weeks ago when we stopped our study of Acts in December that we had stopped in a natural spot. Acts 1-12, to which occupied the previous year, is focused primarily on Peter's ministry. You remember when the Holy Spirit came in power at Pentecost, Peter preached to the Jews gathered in Jerusalem. It was Peter who confirmed the Spirit's work in Samaria. And then he began carrying the gospel to Gentiles, namely Cornelius. So we've seen the Spirit begin to move the gospel to the ends of the earth. And while we saw Saul of Tarsus get converted in the previous section, 
and eventually head to the city at Antioch with Barnabas, we've really heard little about Saul's ministry. Well, that's about to change. Acts 13 to the end of the book will focus on Saul, or as we know him, Paul the Apostle, and his missionary campaigns. We'll watch Paul move from the new center of Christendom, we we could say, Antioch, all the way throughout the Roman Empire to Rome itself. But as we see this unfold, it will be clear that it's the Spirit of God directing the mission. I noted at the study beginning of our study of Acts that the book is often called Acts of the Apostles. It's really better to call it the Acts of the Risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit through the Apostles. That's too long, you might say. But it conveys what's happening in the text. There are three references to the work of the Spirit before us, and it will be obvious to us that the Spirit of God is driving the mission of God to take the Gospel to the Gentiles. Well, let's see three things. The work of the Spirit in three ways. First, the Spirit calls in verses 1 to 3. Back in chapter 11, we saw that Barnabas and Saul had been teaching at the church at Antioch for a year. Luke didn't tell us a whole lot about the growth there, but by our text, which is a year later, five men are now in leadership in that church. Verse 1, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, or we could translate prophets who are teachers. These guys are given authority. They're instructing the church. And who are they? Barnabas, Simon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now, several things are interesting about this collection of men. I hope you find them interesting. Barnabas and Saul, we already know. They are Hellenistic Jews. Jews born away from Jerusalem. Barnabas was from Cyprus, an island in the Mediterranean Sea, and Saul was from Tarsus in Cilicia. That's Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And then we have three unknown guys, and we never hear about them again. Simeon, who is called Niger. Now, Niger is the Latin word for black. And it probably indicates two things. One, he moved about the Roman Empire so that a Latin word, that was the official language of Rome, sticks to him. And it probably indicates his dark complexion, likely his African ethnicity. And then there's Lucius of Cyrene, which is also a city in Africa, in northern Africa, which is modern-day Libya. It's very likely that these two guys, Simeon and Lucius, are Gentiles. And then there's Menaean, who apparently grew up around Herod the Tetrarch. If you're like me, you still have to look. Which Herod are we talking about? There are too many of them and I get confused. This is the Herod who arrested John the baptizer, cut his head off, and who had mocked Jesus. Herod was part Jewish. Menaean may have been too, though we don't know. But if there's guilt by association, you would expect Menaean to have it. He's been attached to a rich oppressive, Jesus-hating man. And yet here he is, converted and a leader in Christ's church. And brethren, look at the diversity present. We have Jews and non-Jews. We have those who had 
studied in Jerusalem. Paul studied with the famous Gamaliel. And we have guys from far off places. We have the upper crust of society and somebody like Manan, and we have people we've never heard of who apparently are commoners. As Christ builds His church and even selects her leaders, we're seeing different ethnicities, different social backgrounds, different economic status. And what's even more interesting is that none of these guys are from Antioch. The church didn't eyeball homegrown talent for leadership. No, they recognized those whom the Lord had gifted wherever they were from, whatever nationality they had. And this is a beautiful picture of the nature of the church. And the church is going to get even more diverse as it goes throughout the Roman Empire. But at this point, before the gospel crosses into what we would call modern-day Europe. They had no conception of Europe in the first century. But let me debunk a common narrative about Christianity. We often hear politically, or in in the cycle of politics, or in the cycle of academia, which is liberal, critical, and it's a climate of hostility to Jesus and the church, we often hear that Christianity is Western, white and wealthy. That is, it looks to oppress other people and dominate. I want you to pay attention to this text right here in Antioch, the first place that believers were called Christians, and I want you to see that they are not Western. We've got people from Africa and Asia, the Middle East. They are not white. We have brown-skinned people. Think people from modern-day Turkey. That's where Paul is from people who lived in the Mediterranean islands. That's where Barnabas is from. We've got people from Africa, so people who are black. There's no white guy in this picture. And maybe only two people came from a background of wealth. You see, as the church is spilling over into the world, it's coming from eastern territory. And we have two-thirds, or excuse me, one-third here at least, maybe if I do my math right, two-fifths, that's African in leadership. The Lord is plucking the unlikely, that Fox Herod's lifelong friend, and the persecuting Saul of Tarsus, and these people are leading the church. Now, brethren, what principles are we to learn from this? Well, at the very least, we are to see that the Spirit's intent is not to save one group of people, one ethnic bunch, but those of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And as they are saved, the Spirit is building unity in the midst of vast diversity. The most crucial unifying factor in Christ's church is not whether we come from the same country, we have similar skin tones, or we grew up in the same tax bracket. The most crucial unifying factor is that we serve the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And here we are this morning. And if we took a poll, we'd find out that we're from all over the world. And the Lord has plucked us as brands from the burning, that we would know Christ, love Christ, and be the bride of Christ. We are all very different, but we have the Spirit's indwelling presence. We are one church, one holy people, one house, one temple to the Lord. Because what God has promised to Abraham, that the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, would bless the nations, that's coming to pass in the text. 
The church is a diverse beauty by the grace of God. Be amazed by that, at the Spirit's work. And then we see the Spirit getting particular by the established leadership experiencing a change. Verse 2, these men were worshiping the Lord and fasting. Often fasts were tied to seeking guidance. Think of the book of Esther. And while they sought the Lord for direction, verse 2, the Holy Spirit said, probably by one of the prophets, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now we could stop here and take a long time out and talk about the nature of a call to service in Christ's church and the way God's people recognize that call. But the emphasis here is on the prior work of the Spirit. Before the church recognizes a definite work of ministry, a call to which a man should be set apart, the Spirit Himself calls. How is a man to be set apart for ministry? First, by the Spirit. Guys can't just decide to do work in the church because it's a respectable job, or at least it used to be. Missionary service isn't like choosing to be a plumber. The Spirit of God makes a man a minister of the Gospel. It is unique. It's a special call. And no one should dare undertake Gospel ministry, whether it's in the local pastorate or on the mission field, without the call of the Spirit. But how do we recognize the call of the Spirit? Well, Luke doesn't tell us all the ways here, but at least he indicates one thing. When the Spirit of God calls, He has the church recognize the call. In this case, the Spirit spoke. Now, we in our day aren't anticipating a prophet to tell us, Tom over there is a minister. Instead, the Spirit shows us He's called a man by giving him gifts for ministry and the graces that accompany those gifts. But we recognize, or at least once we recognize, that a man is called by the Spirit, the church has a role. Do you see that in the text? The Spirit doesn't privately come to Barnabas and Saul and say to them, you guys are my missionaries, go do your thing. No, the Spirit conveys to the entire leadership that these men are be set apart. In fact, the grand missionary endeavor is birthed in the midst of worship. As they're worshiping or serving the Lord, seeking the Lord, God indicates the plan to send these men to go and bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Worship births missions. That makes sense, doesn't it? John Piper has famously put it, this is the best John Piper quote I've ever read in my life. I've, I've been touched by it for over 20 years. Listen carefully. Missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Piper goes on to say there will be a day when missions will stop and we will be forever worshiping the Lord. But right here in the text, God in worship calls these men to go seek more worshipers in missions that the nations will be called to serve Christ. And yet in what sense are Barnabas and Saul being set apart? Well, notice verse 3. After fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And often when we think on about the laying on of hands, we think about a man being initially 
ordained to serve as a teacher, an elder, but Barnabas and Saul were already ordained. Paul has been called as an apostle, and he'll never stop being an apostle. The point here of setting them apart is to recognize they are to engage in a different field of service, an extraordinary mission as they take the gospel. And the Spirit could have certainly led Barnabas and Saul, irrespective of what those in the church see and recognize. But again, brethren, the Spirit is using the church. In an age that devalues the church, that focuses on pure individualism, this is really important. When Saul was first called, when the Lord opened his eyes and sent Ananias to open his eyes, he told him of the Gentile mission that would be before him, but Saul doesn't go until the Spirit through the church sets him apart for that work. God's men are not free to operate on their own terms. The Spirit of God directs through the church. Do you see that principle? I'm, I'm making this, I'm, I keep saying it, but I'm, I'm pressing it because it's ignored. You don't get to just go decide I want to do something. The Spirit shows through the church. We're not individualists. We're under the authority of elders in the church. And these men are going to keep coming back to Antioch to give missionary reports. Why do we give missionary reports today? Because it's biblical, and you're going to see that going forward. The Spirit grounds these men in the church, and the church will always have a connection to these men. That's the way it should work. Men are raised up in a local church. They're connected to the church. The church by the elders recognizes their gifts. The church then prays for them and gives money to them. But everybody knows the Spirit is the one who called. It seems so simple. Why is the world so confused about missions? Maybe we just need to go back and read how simple it was. So the Spirit calls this diverse group to serve Him, calls them for a particular field. And then secondly, we see how the Spirit sends in verses 4 and 5. Now, verse 3 just told us that the church sent them off. But then verse 4 explicitly says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? The church sends, but who's really sending? The Spirit sends. The Spirit is directing the work of these men. God's Spirit doesn't merely say go and then not go with them. The agent who called them sends them, and the one who called them, the Spirit, goes with them to do their work. What is their work? Often folks think of missionaries in a very different way than local pastors. But Luke will show us right here that isn't the case. What is it the apostles have been doing in their setting, whether it's Jerusalem, Samaria, or taking the gospel to the Gentiles? They're doing the same thing. Preaching the Word of God. Well, what is the Spirit going to do with Barnabas and Saul? We'll start looking with me at verse 4 and following. They travel, verse 4, from Antioch to Seleucia, ride down the uh, Arntes River about 15 miles, and from the port of Seleucia, they sail to Cyprus, Barnabas' home country, and they begin their work on the east coast of Cyprus at Salamis. You can look at a map if you're confused in the back of your Bible, perhaps. But what is the work there? Verse 5, they proclaimed, or better, continual tense, they were proclaiming, they constantly were proclaiming the Word of God in the synagogues, plural, of the Jews. 
In other words, the work of missions is preaching, is declaring the Word. It is announcing the redemption found in Christ. Barnabas and Saul do not sail to an island in the Med for a vacation, for a conference on leadership, for cross-cultural information gathering, even for service projects, good works like establishing an orphanage or running a seminary or advising on economic development and so forth. Those aren't bad things. And I'm not knocking them as bad things. They're needed things. But that's not the work of missions. Missions is seeking worshipers. Missions is proclaiming Christ. Declaring Jesus and what He has done and calling souls to repent and believe in Christ. That's what Barnabas and Saul are doing. They are announcing the culmination of God's covenant purposes in the Word. Namely, Christ and Him crucified. Jesus is the one in whom the promises of God are fulfilled. So repent and believe in His name. There's forgiveness found in Christ. That's all they're doing, brethren. They're unfolding the plan of God in the Scripture that all must turn to Christ, all must see that Jesus is our righteousness for He came to save His people from what? Their sins. So we can say this as we think about missions. Local preachers announce the Gospel at home. That's what we want to be happening in this pulpit. That sinners are called to Christ for pardon and peace. We have one message. Jesus. Rest in Him. Be conformed to Christ. That's the local word. And then missionaries are sent out to announce this same Gospel. The same truths about Jesus as they go abroad. So both local guys and sent out guys are Gospel preachers. If they're not preaching the Gospel, they're not really missionaries. If they're not preaching the Gospel, they are not faithful. Because there's only one name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's only one focal point of the Scriptures and it's Jesus Christ. And you see, it was the Gospel that saved us and it's likewise the Gospel that does its work constantly in us that we would grow as Christians. Conversion happens through the Gospel. Sanctification happens by means of the Gospel. What we need every Lord's Day, whether we're here or on a mission field, is not the talking points of pop psychology. We don't need feel-good, therapeutic messages that everything is going to be okay. You just need to breathe and find rest and have self-fulfillment. What we need is the Word of God, the unfolding of the Scriptures. We need Christ and not man's opinions. We need Christ and not 12-step programs to a better you. And what the Spirit sends His men to do is to proclaim Christ, the Word of God. Now, while focused on the fundamental work that the Spirit sends them to do, preaching the Word, we can at least draw one distinction between local pastors and missionaries. Barnabas and Saul are coming from a place at Antioch where they were preaching the Gospel to mostly established Christians. I'm sure people were still being converted, but the work in Antioch had become primarily one of discipleship, of training believers in the Gospel. As they now go out, they are proclaiming Christ primarily to unbelievers. They're doing evangelistic preaching. They're seeking to establish a church where there is no church so that discipleship could then occur. And they're 
continuing to prove from the Bible that Jesus is the Christ. Now, there could have been Christians already on this island. It's where Barnabas is from. There were people from Cyprus present when Peter preached at Pentecost. But it appears there's not a church established. So here we see Barnabas and Saul gathered in synagogues to proclaim the Word of God. Their chief work is evangelistic. But notice, where do they begin proclaiming the Gospel? They go first to the synagogues. Now Luke doesn't tell us how long they were in Salamis on the east coast of Cyprus, but he does indicate that there were multiple synagogues, because he uses the plural, so they were making the rounds to the various synagogues. And who would be found in synagogues? Well, primarily, that would be Jews. Now, don't forget this. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. That's how we think of him. But where does Paul always start when he preaches the gospel? He begins with the Jews. Do you remember how Paul puts this in Romans 1, chapter 1, verse 16? The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. God's purpose is to take the Gospel to those with the Scriptures who know covenantal blessing because they should be primed to hear of Messiah. Many of the Jews will reject the Messiah Jesus. They will harden their heart, and when they do, the Gospel goes to the Gentiles. But what we need to see, and this is important for us, is that the Gentile mission, which is commencing as Paul goes out, is not a rejection of ongoing work among the Jews. While many Jews will show hostility to the Gospel, the Word of God must keep confronting the Jews. The Spirit would have both Jews and Gentiles hear of Christ and come to Christ. The Jews are not to be forgotten. The gathering of the saints through the preached Word will always include Jews. Because the ultimate purpose of the Spirit, Romans 11, is that all Israel would be saved. Now that's a confusing passage in Romans 11. And whether you understand it to mean a remnant of Jews saved throughout the history of the church or a great ingathering of Jews at the last day, either way, God's purpose is for the Gospel to go to the Jews and that never stops. The Spirit is sending these men to start with Jews but of course to proclaim the Gospel to all who hear so that as the Gospels preach, Jew and Gentile would come to faith in Jesus. Well, brethren, then Luke shows us a unique episode where salvation occurs, but it occurs like we keep seeing in the midst of opposition. The Gospel goes out empowered by the Spirit, but where the Spirit works, Satan always resists. And that happens finally as we see the Spirit convicts and converts. After reporting to us the presence of John Mark in verse 5 to assist Barnabas and Saul, that will become important later, so I'll save that, Luke sends us to the other side of Cyprus, about 90 miles away, to Paphos, verse 6, the west coast of this island. And Barnabas and Saul encounter a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar, which means son, Bar-Jesus, so son of Jesus or son of Joshua. It's confusing. His name is also Elimus, which just means magician. 
he's part of the covenant community. He's Jewish, but he's clearly dismissing the Word of God. Deuteronomy 18 made it very clear that the practice of sorcery or magic among God's people was forbidden. <clears throat> and the penalty for doing it, Exodus 22, was death. But Elimus doesn't care. He's the devil's man. He's a liar out to sink souls. And when there's interest in the Gospel with the proconsul, think of him kind of like as a mayor of sorts. Verse 7, Sergius Paulus, He's a man of intelligence. He desires to hear the gospel. He summons Barnabas and Saul to listen to the word of God. And at that moment, Elias the magician was with the proconsul, proconsul, likely meaning he's on the payroll. And he rises up, verse 8, to oppose God's men. Now his intent is clear, to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Elimus sees Barnabas and Saul as a threat to his wallet. He's not concerned for the spiritual well-being of the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. He just doesn't want to lose his source of income. In many ways, this is similar back to Acts chapter 8 when Peter encountered Simon Magnus, who was also a magician and had strong words for that phony. Well, we don't know what Elimus is whispering into the ear of the proconsul, but Saul, verse 9, who is also called Paul, this is the transition in the book to the Greek name for the apostle that's used in Gentile settings, Paul is crystal clear and strikingly confrontational. Paul, filled with the Spirit, and that's important to know, the Spirit is driving these words, Paul looked intently at him, verse 10, and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? That's quite a word. Why don't you tell us what you really think, Paul? But remember, Paul is not speaking on his own authority. He hasn't lost control and started to vent. The spirit of self-control is giving Paul these words. And we should note, beloved, the Spirit of God does not always talk in niceties. Sometimes cutting words need to be said. Gospel opponents need to be denounced. There is a place for words of judgment. That is not giving us a license to insult people. But just as Jesus called the unbelieving, hard-hearted Pharisees sons of the devil and hypocrites, We see gospel opponents need to be told of their wickedness. We don't do anyone any favors by being silent when Satan is at work in them. If there be those attacking the gospel, trying to turn people away from the faith, it is satanic. And there is a place for standing strong against gospel resistors and rebuking them. Paul's language here at the end of verse 10 is really interesting. John the Baptist had been called to a task of making straight the ways of the Lord. That's the work the Spirit gave him to do, to make clear the way to Jesus. The devil is doing just the opposite through this man. He's aiming to obscure or make crooked, to twist the way of the Lord. That's the devil's way. He's a twister. He works to turn people to other paths. He wants to direct you not to him who gives life, but to destruction. And the devil won't ever quit his work until Jesus comes back. But Paul challenges this man 
to stop it. And he says to him, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, brethren, this implies a call to repentance. In the, and the, the repentance call is evident in the temporary nature of the judgment. Elimus is struck that he's struck blind by the hand of the Lord, but he's blind for a time. Do you see that in verse 9? He's unable to see the sun for a time. Note the mercy there. This is a judgment, but it's not permanent. This man deserves to die, to be struck down by the Lord, but the Lord, while giving hair-raising words and a hard judgment, nevertheless, in wrath, remembers mercy. This false prophet can repent and turn to Christ. Now, we're not told if he did that, but see the kindness of the Lord in the midst of judgment. It's possible that there could be someone here this morning who comes to worship with the hand of God against you. And maybe you're not trying to dissuade anyone from being a Christian, but maybe with your words and your actions, you really are opposing the gospel. You're turning the straight path to be a crooked path. But you can turn. You can repent. You may be overwhelmed by trouble, visited with hardship, but the sun may yet rise upon you. Turn to Christ. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Stop evil and submit to Jesus who is merciful and who will ransom guilty souls. Again, we have no idea if Elimus did this. But what we do know is the judgment fell upon him immediately. It stopped his resistance. Why? So that the word of God could come to the proconsul, Sergius Paulus. And we read verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. This man had been interested in hearing the word. He sought it out. And now he sees the power of the gospel. But interestingly, Luke doesn't say, as the proconsul believed, and as he saw the judgment, he doesn't say he was astonished at the miracle, though that was astonishing. He was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. What teaching brought such astonishment? He was astonished that there was life, forgiveness, salvation in the name of Jesus. That there was good news amidst the bad news. And doesn't the miracle confirm the good news? Barnabas and Paul are preaching that there's victory in Jesus, that He overcame Satan, sin, and death, and the miracle shows that it's true. The devil can't stand against the powerful work of Jesus Christ. Satan attacks, but Satan is not the victor. He's thrown down by the Lord Jesus. Satan wields a power, but his power is nullified by Christ. And that, dear friends, means... Sin and its dominion can't win. Death can't win. We have victory in Christ through His resurrection. That's good news. There's hope for a sinner like Sergius Paulus that he could be received into the kingdom of God. He could find his soul pardoned. His guilty stains washed away. He could be changed from an enemy to a son. And here we see another incredible thing. For the first time, we have a Gentile with no previous background in Judaism at all who is converted. 
Previously, we've seen a God-fearer like the Ethiopian eunuch and a centurion Cornelius. They at least went to synagogue. Right here, we have a raw pagan. And what does God do? He plucks the pagan from the path of wickedness and gives him peace in the Lord Jesus. Because the gates of hell and the servants of Satan cannot stop the power of the gospel. That should encourage you. As the word of Christ goes forth, brethren, this remains true. God can conquer sinners. Lord Jesus, He is the King and He saves. And if you're here and you need salvation, you can turn to the Lord and be saved. But for all of us, we can rest in Christ and we can be astonished at this one glorious thing. We come as great sinners. But there's forgiveness found in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, we marvel at Your grace and power. We marvel that You would be willing to cleanse guilty souls like we are. Lord, we thank You that Your Gospel goes out to save those of every nation, tongue, tribe, and people. And Lord, we thank You for the work of Your Spirit to open blind eyes, to transform hardened hearts. And we thank You that Your Spirit is at work to compel men to preach that Gospel through which life comes to Your people as we look to Christ. O Lord, may Your Spirit work in us and help us rejoice at the salvation found in Jesus. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.